I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some content from the November edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on food and beverage cues in television programming. So one of the many factors that contribute to childhood obesity is sedentary behaviour such as watching television. In this month's edition, Scully and colleagues explore the frequency and type of food and beverage placements in children's television programmes and adverts assessing food cues. So a food and beverage cue is defined as a product being displayed within a specific food context with the potential to be consumed. The cues were coded by type of product, healthy or non-healthy, product placement, product use, motivation, outcome and characters involved. Food and beverage cues accounted for 4.8% of the 82.5 hours studied and unhealthy foods accounted for 47.5% of specific food cues with sugar sweetened beverages accounting for 25%. Sweet snacks were the most frequent food cue followed by sweets and candy. Tea and coffee were the most frequent beverage cue, followed by sugar-sweetened beverages. The outcome of the cue was positive in 32%, negative in 19% and neutral in 47%. It's really interesting to work through this article. It's a really interesting phenomenon to think about. What I'd suggest is, when you next watch television you look at the cues to food and beverages and think through the impact they could potentially have on eating choices and health longer term. The second article I'd like to highlight this month relates to time from fever onset and the diagnostic accuracy of the C-reactive protein. So C-reactive protein, CRP, is widely used in the assessment of children with suspected bacterial infection, although it's well known that the CRP obtained in the first 12 hours is of limited diagnostic value, at least in ruling out serious significant sepsis. In this issue, Siegel and colleagues report a prospective observational study of febrile children presenting to the emergency department. That's 373 children, of whom 103 had bacterial infection. In this study, they look at the diagnostic performance of CRP at different time points from fever onset. There's a considerable amount of data in the paper, which is well worth working through. The optimal cutoff of CRP suggesting bacterial infection increased with time from fever onset. 6 milligrams per deciliter at 12 hours, 10.7 at 24 to 48 hours, and 12.6 at 48 hours. Duration of fever mostly impacted on the ability of CRP to correctly rule out serious bacterial infection. In this cohort, a CRP of 2 milligrams per deciliter at less than 24 hours corresponded to a post-test probability of bacterial infection of 10%, whereas the same value at more than 24 hours 
reduced the risk to 2%. In essence, this study reinforces the need to take into account the time from onset of fever when interpreting CRP and is a useful reminder that a low CRP taken within 24 hours of fever onset does not rule out significant bacterial infection. The third article I'd like to highlight this month relates to recent advances in the management of cystic fibrosis. The prognosis for cystic fibrosis has improved greatly over the last few decades. The treatment burden remains high with usually a combination of multiple oral and inhaled drugs as well as physiotherapy required on a daily basis. Why has this prognosis improved? Well, there are many reasons. And in this excellent review, Jane Davis highlights recent advances in the pathogenesis and the many new therapies which are packed at different phases of disease development with the aim of increasing life expectancy and reducing treatment burden. The authors discuss in detail recent developments in CFTR gene therapy, CFTR protein modulation, including ribosomal read-through drugs, potentiators and correctors, airway surface rehydration, mucolytics, anti-inflammatory agents and anti-infective treatments. Future challenges are discussed and like many chronic conditions, there is a call for better clinical markers to assess disease progression and for more pragmatic clinical trials. There's the potential with increased use of small molecule drugs and gene therapy earlier to impact on disease outcome long term. This article's excellent CPD and shows there have been significant advances in the management of this condition over the last 15 to 20 years. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to environmental tobacco smoke and the risk of allergic sensitisation. It's well known that environmental tobacco smoke increases the risk of asthma. Valesco and colleagues in this issue review the evidence for the impact of environmental tobacco smoke on allergic sensitisation in children. This review is based on data from 19 studies, that's 24,000 children. The authors report increases in total IgE, increases in specific IgE, odds ratio 1.12, and in skin prick test positivity, odds ratio 1.15, with higher odds ratios in a subgroup analysis of children less than 7 years of age. It's more evidence to show that exposure to tobacco smoke is harmful. Exposure to tobacco smoke is a potentially preventable risk factor for the development of allergic disease in childhood and one of the many reasons why exposure of children to tobacco smoke should be limited. I'd like to highlight from Fetal and Neonatal this month an article which relates to timely immunisation of preterm infants against rotavirus in the neonatal intensive care unit. Rotavirus gastroenteritis is responsible for 14,000 admissions, 30,000 attendances and 91 to 133,000 general practice visits annually in England and Wales. Preterm infants are at increased risk and have a higher morbidity and complication rate if infected. Rotavirus immunisation, that's oral, live, attenuated, 
was introduced in the UK in 2013, given at two and three months along with the routine schedule. Ladani and colleagues discussed the safety and efficacy in term and preterm infants with no increase in risk of serious adverse effects, diarrhoea, irritability or fever in large placebo-controlled trials in both groups. Although caution is advised in infants with a history of intersusception or malformation of the gastrointestinal tract that would predispose to intersusception, these concerns are largely theoretical, with recent data suggesting the vaccine is well tolerated even in infants with high output short bowel syndrome. One of the practical issues is timing. The vaccine needs to be given on time. In the preterm infant, this may need to be prior to discharge in order to avoid the most vulnerable infants from not being protected with the risk of transmission to other infants in the neonatal units being minimal. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. For further detail of content, please refer to the journal website. Thanks for listening.